Hey, good morning. My name is Matt Nelson. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning at Stonebridge. And I want to remind you that no matter where you are coming from, no matter where you're watching from, that our God is able to be known by us this morning and that we are able to connect with him. And so I wanted to give you a couple of different ways that you can be able to connect in this morning, both with God and in our community. First, if you would like us to pray for anything going on in your life, we would love to be praying alongside you. And so in the comments, you'll see a link to our prayer card, uh, and that'll take you directly uh, to a spot where you can fill out just what you would like us to be praying alongside you for, and we'll reach out to you and be praying with you in the next day or two. The second is a list of our small groups, and so if you found yourself needing more community, needing more people, and uh, people to encourage and support and to challenge you in this time, I want to direct you to that link as well, and that'll show you all of our small groups um, and especially if you are not able to meet with other people in this time, there are four small groups that are just meeting online that I want to draw your attention to I think you'd be interested in. All right, we're so glad that you are here this morning. Let's go ahead and join in the service. Glad you guys are here. If y'all are joining us online, glad that you're, glad you found us. Sorry we had that little hiccup at 930. Glad y'all are back. Uh, middle school, you guys can slip out with Jeremy and Emily. Everybody else, y'all can turn to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. Two quick announcements. One, y'all know we're partners in education with Park Streets and Elementary School on the other side of the square. And they're looking for tutors. Uh, if I understand correctly, it's lower elementary, first through third grade, specifically in reading. As with many uh, students, they had some pretty big drop-offs. Um, in performance and achievement because of COVID in the spring. Uh, and it's, it's a high poverty school, so that's, that's exacerbated in a couple of different ways. So uh, bottom line is they've got a lot of kids that are, that are in a hole, and they need, they're working to, to get them back on track. And so we want to help. So if that's you, if you're someone who's got some time during the day and that's kind of your thing, first through third graders teaching them, Email Kim, Kim at StonebridgeMarietta.org, and she'll connect you with Deanna, the principal over there at Park Street, and we can get you, um, get you the details so you can make a good decision about whether that's an area that you want to plug into. And then my two cents on the interns. So we, we've done this internship program. I think this is our fourth time, and both Ryan and Harrison are a bit of, they're, they're outliers. Normally we get guys who are trying to figure out, is God calling me into some type of church work or missionary work? And these guys already know. They're just at a bit of a transition point in life. And so what I'm asking for y'all is to pray for them and to open yourselves up to them. Ryan needs experience as one of the requirements for him to move forward in this chaplaincy. And so you only, you only learn by doing. So, so let him. Like, open yourself up to him. Give him opportunities to minister into your life. And then for Harrison and Taylor, they're just, things are really up in the air for them. If you can put yourself in their shoes, you go visit your family, and then when you're with them, you find out you can't go back to your home. The business that you started, you can't get back to. The schools where your kids are, the place where you've lived, you can't get back to any of those things, and you don't know when you're going to be able to. And so they're really trying to just discern what is God saying to us in this season of our life, so you can be praying for them. And uh, again, just open yourselves up to them, and it will be, it'll be good. It'll be good for them, and it'll be good for us. All right, Zechariah 1. So the returnees... They've been in the land for 16, pushing 17 years, but it's only in the last several months that they've actually 
gotten to work rebuilding the temple. Last week we looked at the last two messages from Haggai. They were delivered on December um, 18th of 520. And they were, one was this word that said that the season of futility is over. Uh, you guys have struggled for a season, and it, I, I would say a season's well over a year, several years, I believe. But that's over because you've returned to the Lord, because you're rebuilding this temple, God is going to bless. And so they're entering a new season of their corporate life together. And then Haggai closes with this far distant kind of future look at um, the kingdom. And they probably would have understood that as having a, a king on the throne in Israel. We understand it as Jesus sitting on the throne of the kingdom of God. What we're going to look at for the next several weeks is the book, the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was also sent to the returnees around the same time as Haggai. We've already looked at one of his messages in, in November of 520. He called the people to repent. He said it's not enough just to start rebuilding this temple. You have to re-engage with the Lord at a heart level. And then on February 15th of 519 B.C., February 15th, he's got, he has eight visions. They're called night visions. He's not asleep. These are not dreams. These are visions that he has at night. And as we read them, you'll recognize a lot of similarities between Zechariah and Revelation, which we just uh, got finished with back in the summer. Uh, both John and Zechariah, see, they see visions. The purpose of those visions is to encourage God's people who are living in a difficult circumstance. Um, it's, a, it's a disclosing, a, a pulling back of the curtain. Here's what's happening in the spiritual world. God is showing, here's what I'm doing. And then also giving some spiritual significance to what the people are doing. You're not just laying bricks on top of one another. Here's what's actually happening uh, behind the scenes in the spiritual world because of your obedience. Like Revelation, there's a, a lot of symbolism, and so like Revelation, we can get lost in the weeds pretty quickly, but we're going to try to avoid that. So these visions all occur five months after the people started rebuilding the temple, so still, still early days uh, in their renewed sense of obedience. We'll start reading in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision. That's, that's all the stuff we just talked about. And there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And I asked, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I'll show you what they are. And then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, these are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you've been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. 
Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. So two, two visions. First one, pretty straightforward. He sees Zacharias, he's a man on a red horse in a ravine of myrtle trees. And then you see some other horses behind different colors, red, brown, white. And the implication is they've got riders as well. So if you're it's Zachariah's original audience, he comes to you the next day and is like, man, you won't believe this. I had eight visions last night. And you're listening to him. What are you hearing? I think when you, a man on a horse, horses were used in military. Uh, they were used in battle. If you had a horse, you had a, um, an advantage over everyone else. They were ridden by royalty, not, not regular people. And they were kind of symbolic of speed. So those are things kind of bouncing around in your head. Myrtle trees. If you know the Old Testament, you probably are thinking, all right, so we use those. We use these myrtle trees once a year when we go to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles and we build our little booth, our little tent where we live for the week. We use myrtle trees to, to construct that building, that, that temporary structure. And at, during the Festival of Tabernacles, we're celebrating We're celebrating 40 years in the wilderness where God took care of our ancestors. He provided for us and he protected us. And maybe you're thinking there's a point of connection there. So these guys were in the wilderness for 40 years because they've been disobedient. God had delivered them from Egyptian slavery. He parted the Red Sea. They'd seen 10 miracles. They'd walked across one. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. Moses sends 10 spies into the the land. They come back, excuse me, 12 spies into the land. They come back, 10 of them are scared to death. These guys are huge, and we look like grasshoppers are going to squash us. God's leading us into destruction. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are like, no, God's given us this land. We, we can do this. We can do this. He's given us the land. But the people go with the majority report, not the minority report. They give in to fear. They grumble against Moses. They grumble against God. And so God puts them in timeout for 40 years, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And these guys are probably thinking, we've had 70 Seventy years we've been in captivity because us and our parents and our grandparents were disobedient. And maybe the encouragement is God took care of our ancestors when they were being disciplined because of their own disobedience. He didn't forsake them. He continued to care for them even while they were being punished. He'll do the same thing for us. Maybe that's what you're thinking about. I don't think the color of the horses is very significant. If you do, you can read Revelation 6 and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and you can draw those connections. The horses, to me, are, are minor details in the vision, so I don't think the, the colors mean a ton. Then, thankfully, Zechariah also sees and then hears an interpreting angel. There's somebody to help him understand, thankfully. So he goes to this guy, this angel, and he says, what are these? And the angel says, well, I'll show you. And the man on the horse says, we were all sent, me and these other horses and their riders, we were sent by the Father into all the earth, and we're bringing back a report. And that report is the earth is full of peace and, and the earth is at rest. The earth is at rest and, and full of peace. And so when we hear that, we think, that's great news, right? Isn't that what we want? We want the earth to be at rest and full of peace. But the response doesn't seem to indicate that it's a good thing. And I don't think it's a good thing. The response of the Father, I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. So the whole earth is at rest and at peace, and the Father's very angry with the nations. 
The angel of the Lord, that's an enigmatic figure in the Old Testament. Some people see the angel of the Lord as like the the number one angel, the highest ranking angel. Many people see the angel of the Lord as a pre-incarnate son. That's who, that, that would, I'm in that camp. So God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, second person of the Trinity is the Son. Easter, what we celebrate is the Son becoming a man, the incarnation, putting flesh on, named Jesus. In the Old Testament, you don't see Jesus walking around because he hadn't been born yet. But you do see the angel of the Lord. And again, for, I, I believe this, and there are many who do, who say that that's, that's the pre-incarnate son. That's Jesus before he was born. So I'm just going to call him Jesus 500 years too early for the sake of simplicity. So Jesus' response when he hears the report from this angel is intercession. He goes to the Father and says, when are you going to be merciful to your people? You've been angry with them for 70 years. That was the time set for their punishment, for the exile. In Jeremiah 25, God says it's going to be 70 years before you come back to this land. Some people count 70 years from 597 when the first wave of exiles went. Some count it from 586 when the last wave of exiles went and the temple was destroyed. doesn't really matter. We're, we're right around that number. It's 519. So whether it's 597 or 586, you're hovering right around that 70-year number. And the sun part of his responsibility is to intercede on behalf of God's people, goes to the Father. I don't think he's asking him a question. I think he's praying a prayer. When are you going to have mercy on your own people? So the world's at peace and at rest, but the Father's very angry and the Son is interceding. The word peace is it's a different word. So there's a huge word in the Old Testament, shalom. Massively important. One of the most important words in the Bible. It means well-being and harmony in every area of your life. Well-being and harmony in every area of your life. I think one of the primary benefits of being a Christian is you get to live in shalom. We get to experience well-being in every area of our life. That's not the word here for peace. The word here just means um, to be undisturbed, which is great. A lack of conflict, which is great. But it doesn't have the, the godness to it. So I think what the angels are reporting, it's a false peace. It's like the peace in a prison. The Persians, are the, they're the, the big guy on the block and everybody knows it. Nobody can challenge them militarily. Because of their power and their dominion, there's peace. But it's the peace that comes from everybody acknowledging we're just not strong enough to fight you. We're not with you. We're just not strong enough to oppose you yet. It's a false peace. It's not rooted in the work of God. It's rooted in the power of the Persians. And so then we see the, the father, he speaks these comforting words in response to the intercession of the son. And those words are passed on to the angel. And then Zacharias shares, based on that report, based on this report that the whole earth is full of peace and is at rest, but it's a false peace. It's not rooted in the work of God. We see God feel a couple of things and then commit to doing a couple of things. And it's a contrast. The way God feels about his people, or if you like, if if God feeling is hard for you, his attitude towards these people, his own people, and then God's attitude or his feelings towards the nations. There's a contrast, and then there's a contrast between what God's going to do with his people and what he's going to do with the nations. So first, the feeling piece. God says, I'm very jealous for my people. And that's not a, when we hear the word jealousy, that's a negative word for us, and rightfully so. 
But here it is applied to God. In the Old Testament, the word jealousy is this, or the word jealous, excuse me, is the same as the word zealous. It's, it's the same word. So for us in this context, maybe it's easier to hear God is zealous for his people. He's passionately committed, fiercely committed to the good of his people. In this case, he was angry with them for a little while. All of you who are parents have experienced this. You've been angry with your kids for a little while, and that's when you punish them. You discipline them for a little. You're not trying to destroy them. You're trying to correct their behavior. God was angry with his people for a little while, for 70 years. They'd been persistently disobedient, so he put them in time out for 70 years. But the Babylonians, they took it too far. So God now is, he's very jealous for his people or zealous to see them restored and to see them blessed. That's what he says through Haggai last week. The season of futility is over. A season of prosperity and blessing is coming to you. Very jealous for his people. On the other hand, very angry with the nations. Why? Because they took it too far. God used the Babylonians to discipline his people. They were the instrument in his hand, but they tried to destroy his people. Isaiah 47, you can read that uh, this week if you have time. Uh, Isaiah says that the Babylonians were merciless to the people of God. Even the old people, merciless to them. And actually tried to take the place of God in their life. He wanted to use, God wanted to use them to discipline. They went too far. They tried to destroy. And so now God is very angry with the nations. And that spills over into how he acts. The, for his own people, the Jews, he's very jealous for them. He's zealous for the best for them. So he comes to them with mercy, returns to them with mercy, the Bible says. He commits to rebuilding the temple. They've just got this started. And he's like, we're going we're gonna to keep doing this. The measuring line across the whole city, that speaks to the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt, which we'll read about when we get to Nehemiah. And he says, I'm gonna, uh, your towns are going to overflow with prosperity. It's a new season for the Jews. He's going to do all of those things because he's very jealous for them. The nations he's very angry with. And that second vision speaks to what he's going to do to the nations. Horns are a symbol of power. There's four horns. So some people say, well, that's four nations that oppose the Israelites, the, Babyl- they, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. Maybe so. So if you're Zachariah's audience, Assyrians are past, Babylonians are past, Persians are present, Greeks are future. Hadn't come on the scene yet. I see four more as a symbolic number. It's a number of the earth. I think it, it signifies all of the nations that oppose God's people. So we have these horns that represent the nations that oppose God's people, either those four or, again, if you're my, my camp, all of the nations that oppose God's people. They've scattered them. They're persecuting them. They're oppressing them. And then what does God raise up to destroy those horns? Craftsmen. Makes no sense to me. What's a craftsman? Somebody who's really good at building things. Someone who's good at working with wood or metal or uh, the the word is literally an engraver. When I think of someone who's going to overthrow a nation, I don't think of like Bob Vila or somebody who's good with their hand. I don't think of that. But that's who God raises up, four craftsmen. And those four craftsmen terrify and throw down these four horns. What's going on? If you think about what the craftsmen are doing in this moment, the craftsmen are leading the charge in rebuilding the temple. Other guys are helping, 
but they're the ones that know the most. They're, they're the best at it. So they're leading the way in rebuilding the temple. And that's such a powerful picture to me of the way God works. And how encouraging would it be to Zachariah's first audience to hear? Right now, you guys are you're rebuilding the temple and it's great, but you're still under this foreign oppression. But recognize God is going to shake the nations. He's going to overthrow these nations that have been oppressing you. And he's going to do it through this building that you're building. It's not just a special building. It's not just a sacred building. They're reestablishing a central place for prayer and worship on the earth. There hasn't been one for 70 years. There's been no place to go to worship God. The temple was destroyed. The altar was destroyed. There was no place to bring sacrifices. There was no place to bring offerings. There was no place for the Jews to gather and worship the father of Jesus. And that's all being rebuilt now. And it's not just about this building. It's about what happens in this building. Prayer and worship lifted up to God and he responds to the prayers of his people. The craftsmen overthrow the horns, not because they build something that overthrows them, not because they've got some great military strategy, not because God sends a king to do it, but because they're reestablishing a place for prayer and worship. And God responds to that. How would your life, how would my life be different if we believe that was true? Six weeks before an election, lots of people are anxious. Who's going to win? What's going to happen? Who gets to pick the next Supreme Court justice? People are worried about all kinds of things. What would it look like if we took that little short vision to heart and said, the horns will be overthrown Not because the right person is put into office. Not because we drop a bomb on the right country. Not because we enact the right law. The horns will be overthrown because God's people pray and they worship. And he responds. Do you believe that your prayers have global significance? Do you? June does. Does anybody else? Do you believe your prayers have global significance? They do. When you pray, you have the ear of the God of the universe. And he is your father. And he listens to you. He listens to you. So when you ask him to work, he does. Do you realize what that means? The influence that you have over the entire world world. It's mind-blowing to me. And we leave it on the table all the time. We get busy organizing and scheming and strategizing. There's nothing wrong with those things. We need to, we've got a big lever to pull, and it's prayer. I want to challenge you the next six weeks I want you to pray. I don't want you to pray for a particular guy to win. I want you to pray for God to work on November 3rd through this election process. Pray for him to put the people in charge that he wants in charge, the ones that he can most use. I think we would all be willing to say neither one of those two guys is sold out for Jesus. So let's just say God pick. You pick the one who's going to be most useful to you and what you're trying to do in our country over the next four years and do the same thing for our local elections. God, pick the ones. Pick the guys 
who are going to be the most useful. Recognize that those prayers shape not just our city, not just our nation. They shape our world. And the more engaged you are politically, the stronger my challenge is to you. If you're spending a lot of time posting and arguing and researching, all that stuff is fine. I just want to say pray as much. Pray as much. Recognize where the real levers are. And they're in heaven. It's four craftsmen that God uses to overthrow these four horns. Last thing and we're going to be done. God is still a jealous God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I'm jealous for my people. And he still is. Exodus 20, verse 5, the second commandment, God says, you can't have any other idols before me. Why? Because I'm a jealous God. Exodus 30, 14, 34, excuse me, 14, God says, my name is jealous with a capital J. How about that? A key element of God's character is he is jealous. When we hear that again, for us, jealousy is a bad word. And because for usually, if it's us, Jealousy is rooted in our flesh. It's rooted in insecurity or some extreme form of possessiveness. For us, it's almost always sinful. Obviously, for God, it's never sinful. What does it mean for him to be a jealous God, and how does that play out in our life? Again, that word jealousy, it's it's a strong uh, emotional word. It literally means to turn red in the face because that's what happens when you feel that way. And there are, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a fierceness about jealousy that is true of God. And it's true in a couple of ways. We experience, God's jealousy is always, it's rooted in his holiness and it's rooted, it's rooted in his love. But we can experience it negatively or positively based on kind of our behavior. So the negative experience of jealousy, it's not negative, but the way we experience it negatively, we see in the exile. So Israel had entered into a covenant with God. God said, I'm going to be your God. And Israel said, we're going to be your people. And God said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to grow you. And the people said, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to obey you. We're going to worship you. We're going to love you. We're going to serve you only. So anytime Israel starts chasing another God, chasing an idol, they're giving to that other God, to that idol, something they'd already committed to God, to the Father. And that provokes jealousy in him. Psalm 79 says the whole reason for the exile was that Judah had provoked God to jealousy. We can experience this a little bit, those of you who are married. It's about the only righteous form of jealousy that we experience as humans. If your spouse is flirting with someone else, what you're feeling is jealousy and it's righteous. That attention that should rightfully be directed to you They are unrighteously directing towards another. And the jealousy that you feel is right. And that's that's how God feels for his people. Both by nature, he's the only one worthy of worship, and by covenant, this relationship says you're going to give me, you've you've said voluntarily, I'm going to give you all of these things. So by nature and by covenant, you've said I'm going to give you worship, love, obedience, service. And if you start directing that somewhere else, that provokes God to jealousy. And his response is discipline. 70 years in the wilderness. He's still the same. He still does that. 
If you're following Jesus, you've entered into a covenantal relationship with him. The New Testament says we're the bride of Christ. We've pledged ourselves to him and to him alone. He gets all of our worship. He gets all of our obedience. He gets all of our loyalty. He gets all of our devotion. He gets all of our service. And if we start chasing other gods, none of you have gods carved in your bedroom. That's not what we do. But there are lots of things that compete for our time and our affection and our energy. Little G gods. Money is a big one where we live. Relationship. A career move. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But when they start to take time or affection or attention or loyalty away from Jesus, we provoke Jesus to jealousy. And it's a righteous jealousy. And over time, what he will do is discipline us. He'll be angry with us. It's a little angry. He's trying to draw us back into relationship. He doesn't want to destroy us. He's trying to draw us back. His jealousy is rooted in his holiness. He's the only one worthy of our worship. And he knows that when we bow down to some other God, it's going to end in disappointment and destruction. It's rooted in love. We've established this relationship with him. where We've said this is, this is exclusive. This is exclusive between you and me. And we bring somebody, something else into the mix. We provoke him to jealousy. And he responds. Flip side, the positive way that we experience God's jealousy. That's verse 14 that we just read. Just like God was jealous for his people and so he was fiercely committed to their good. That idea, he was zealously pursuing the best thing for Israel, which at this point was restoration and blessing. And he was going to take care of anybody that got in the way. He still, it's the same with us. He's jealous for you. And he is zealously committed to your good. Your good is ultimately, my good is ultimately to be conformed as much into the image of Jesus as possible. And so he wants to, whatever the circumstances are, he wants to use those things to make us more like Jesus. He's constantly working uh, to cause all things to come together for our good. Because he's jealous for us. Or zealous for the best for us. So this is how I want us to close. If you wouldn't mind shutting your eyes, I want you to ask you a question. I'm going to give you a, 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 a binary choice here, which is not going to seem fair, but I have the microphone, so it's what we're going to do. I want you to look at your circumstances. You can think about your money. You can think about your health. You can think about your relationships, your career, whatever. I want you to think about your circumstances, and here's a question I want you to ask the Lord right now. Holy Spirit, would you speak to me through my circumstances? For some of us, we don't do that. If God wants to speak to us, it's going to be directly or maybe through the word. Sometimes we'll let other people speak into our life. We don't let God speak through our circumstances. We just read over the last several weeks, these returnees experienced years of futility because they couldn't see God in a drought. Mercifully, God sends Haggai to explain everything to them. Here's your Haggai moment. God, speak to me through my circumstances, if you would. I want to have ears to hear. So here's your binary choice. And here's what you're asking the Lord in your own heart. God, am I doing anything to provoke you to jealousy? Am I giving to another any worship, any affection, any attention, any loyalty that rightfully belongs to you?
God, are you trying to discipline me through my circumstances? Ask him the question. If you feel conviction, again, none of you have totems in your house that you're bowing down to. If you feel conviction, most likely it's around something that's good and you've just made it God. Repent. God, I confess. I've idolized fill in the blank. And I pray that you would give me grace now in this moment to return to you as my first love. And he'll forgive you and he'll restore you. That's the first half of that binary, the second. God speaks to me through my circumstances. Do you want to use my circumstances to disciple me? I don't want to make, just for our sake, I'm going to make a distinction between those discipline and disciple. God, would you use my circumstances to disciple me, to make me more like Jesus? How are you trying to do that? I would say particularly if your circumstances are difficult, it's a great question to ask. God, is there something you're trying to put into me that I lack? Is there something you're trying to take out of me that's become troublesome? I want to cooperate with you. I don't want to kick against the goads. Are you using my circumstances to make me more like Jesus? How do I cooperate with you in that? So there's your binary. God, are you using my circumstances to discipline me? Have I provoked you to jealousy? God, are you using my circumstances to disciple me? To make me more like Jesus. You're zealous for my good. And that's my ultimate good. Holy Spirit, would you speak to everyone in the room. Children, students, adults. I pray particularly for those who are prone to guilt. Kind of the Eeyores among us. God, I pray for mercy for them. The enemy would not be able to pile on. That they would hear your voice really clearly. What are you saying to us? What does a faithful response look like right now on, this, on September 20th? How do we respond faithfully? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to open up this altar. I want you to come and kneel and pray. Uh, again, you can deal, do all of that in your heart, but there is something powerful about a physical response. It can kind of seal things and settle things in our heart. So you can come and kneel if you're comfortable. We'll have some guys to pray for you. They'll be wearing a mask. They've all been temperature checked. And they'll just put a hand on your back. Or you can stay in your seat, and Bo will dismiss us in about three minutes. So you guys respond quick. And then, uh, and then Bo will dismiss us. Thanks.